Okay, good morning. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untied. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me as my guest, James Yoon, who's an IP litigation partner at Wilson Sonsini. James, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, James, before we get into um, some of the interesting uh, things that you do for your litigation, tell me just real briefly how you got into IP litigation to begin with. Um, how I got into IP litigation was... A kind of interesting. I was an electrical engineer, worked for General Motors Corporation, and when I went to law school, I wanted to do anything but anything engineering related. <laughs> and um, had tried a couple things, but my summer after my third year of law school, I was summer associated at Wilson Sonsini. And at the time, everyone wanted to do IPOs, corporate work. And um, so I thought I would be an IPO lawyer, like many Wilson Sonsini lawyers. And I went to the print shop where they were trying to prepare the prospectuses for companies to go out, and I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> and as a result, um, I needed to get a writing assignment for the summer, and so I ended up working with uh, the patent litigators. Uh, at the time, my summer associate mentor was uh, Peter Detkin, who uh -huh. was a partner here at the time, went on to Intel yeah, and right. others. And I really liked it. And uh, so from that time forward, I was interested in patent litigation and IP work. Uh, love at first sight? Uh, love at third sight. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Now tell me, but you, you, what I understand is that you have been able to use some very interesting data analytic tools in being helpful in your litigation. Tell me a little about what you do and what, what, what is that all about? Yeah, I think that it's really important for all of us to know that today we live in a digital fishbowl. Um, you think about what they have now, the technology. So every document you file with the court anywhere is a PDF now. And with optical character recognition, you now have these large databases that scoop up all the data and puts it into uh, data sets. And now you can use these analytical tools for a variety of purposes. One, um, for every lawyer individually, they should know that effectively they have their own fantasy baseball stats. Hmm. Someone can go and find out every case I worked on, the result of every case, every judge I appeared before. Um, similarly, you can do it for every company and every judge. And these data sets allow you to make decisions in a way you never could before. Hmm. So, for example, in, in the past, let's say in the 90s, I had a case in East Texas before a judge at the time, we say Judge Ward, and now there's Judge Gilstrap. Now he has thousands of cases. I can do an analytics. I can tell you how long the case would be, what he's likely to rule on a motion, what his position is, what arguments have been most successful, and use that to the advantage of the client. Additionally, um, you can do these data tools to do both risk assessments if you're going to invest in a company and you're worried about them being sued for patent infringement, and you can create some very reliable models hmm. to budget litigation where you never could before. Hmm. Now, how are you, so how, tell me a little bit specifically, how do you use this in your practice? How do you use this for the benefit of clients? Okay, so um, about 80% of what I do is patent litigation. About 20% of what I do is IP risk assessment, strategic licensing and investment. In patent litigation, oftentimes either someone will get a demand letter or they'll be sued for a lawsuit. 
And the traditional mode, once you were sued for patent infringement, is everyone would read the patent, the prosecution history. You'd be in a room with 10 engineers. The, the legal team would put in hundreds of hours and say, we have a good case or a bad case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Today, data has totally changed that. Mm. The first thing you do is, what is the history of the company suing the patent? Mm. This is a company that's filed 100 patent lawsuits 95 of the patent lawsuits settled in the first 150 days. That tells you that this is a company looking for a quick settlement, um, and as a result, it might not be a good idea to spend the money. Hmm. In contrast, you could have a company that has gone to trial 30%, 40% of the time. Then you'll know that that company is very serious about litigation, that they are going to expect a large settlement demand, or that the case could be brought for strategic purposes. Mm. The other thing is, is that not only it's the company, the key today is make sure that both the company and the lawyers are aligned data-wise to the strategy. Mm. So, for example, a company could hire, um, decide that it wants to file a suit against a competitor and win. But then they hire a lawyer that has never been to trial, has never really done a markman in the last five years and specializes in settling cases in 100 days. But they might be very inexpensive. They might be a contingency lawyer. Well, if the company had the goal of having a strategic bet-the-company lawsuit and they hired the wrong lawyer, the messaging to someone on my side who looks at the data set is that they're not serious, Mm. that the lawyer that they hired is really not a lawyer that's capable of winning. Mm. Now, are you using uh, third-party software tools, or how are you marshalling this evidence and this analytics? Yeah, so there's a number of very good companies. Uh, There's a company, Lexmark China, that was actually founded out of Stanford, Mark Lemley. Mm -hmm. There's another company called Docket Navigator, Mm. and another company called Ravel. Mm -hmm. Those are the three primary services that I use. Um, Docket Navigator and Lexmark China are very similar in the sense that they've culled through all the data sets and from there, they have allowed you to do searches. I can do searches by court, by motion, by filing, and then use those tools to handicap things. So if I file a motion with the judge, and this judge grants the motion 80% of the time, then I might have a good chance of winning. If the judge only grants it 30% of the time, you might have to say, well, is it worth investing my limited legal dollars mm. on that matter? Mm. What I like about Ravel is Ravel kind of comes from the reverse end, almost a psychological view of the judge. Mm. So I could go and say the court summary judgment decisions. In the last 10 cases where the court has granted summary judgment, these are the decisions the judge most often cites, and these are the phrases the judge most often uses. On the cases where the judge has denied summary judgment, these are the cases where the judge most often cites Mm. and uses. Here's the judges that the judge, let's say the appellate judges, the judge seems to like the most. Mm. And I can then tailor my case selection and my word choices to the court's predisposition. Wow. This seems all really powerful. Do you find that most lawyers are actually using this or not that much? What would you say about that? I would say that in uh, Silicon Valley, I would say that about a third or half of the firms that I come across make some use of the data. Hmm. I would say maybe only 5 or 10% actually incorporate it as part of the process. Hmm. Actually, their core way of communicating with counsel. Right, and I think that these tools are incredibly powering to client. Yeah. So, for example, if I didn't tell my client, 
and my client had access to the data set. And I said, we should file a motion to transfer the case from Delaware to the Northern District of California. And my client says, uh, Jim, Judge Robinson only granted this type of motion 10% of the time. Mm. Why should we do it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And now, there may be very good reasons why. Your case might be particularly compelling. Right. It may not be. But it allows you to have a quality of communication level that you never had before with clients mm. and that you can really target limited resources in the most effective way. When did you start really start using this? I would say I became aware of it and started becoming an active user maybe five years ago. Hmm. And, and, and you find that, I mean, these tools, I assume, are getting better and better. And what, what is your experience with them? Yes, the tools are getting better and better. And I think that we are now on the cusp of it, the tools taking off, because I think the, the key smart decision that the data analytic companies had made is originally they just focused on the high-end law firms, Right, saying that these are the people who could afford to buy the tools. The problem from a market standpoint is unless someone was a data junkie like myself, for example, the law firms didn't feel very compelled to get it mm-hmm. because they were doing fine. Mm-hmm. They thought they knew how to do the business. Mm-hmm. Once clients such as, let's say, a Google or an Apple or a powerful clients – started using the tools, and some clients actually have it part of their RFPs, Hmm. then suddenly the lawyers are like, look, I don't get business unless I say I use the tool. And then as people use it, they're starting to appreciate the benefits of it. Now, how would you say, so tell me a little bit about how using this tool and the things you talk about, the statistical analysis, how does that play into like the case strategy? I mean, is that almost becoming as important as the actual merits of the case? I mean, how would you kind of, how do you sort of see that fitting in? Well, actually, I don't think it is as important as the merits of the case, but I think it's a very critical importance. You know, if you think about it from, We're in a client service business, and I always try to think of it from the client standpoint. In the past, a client who'd never been sued for would come to a lawyer like myself Mm -hmm. and say, what do you think? And I've done about 200 patent cases, but that still is a very limited universe when you think that there's 5,000 cases signed every year. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'd be in a new court. Western District of Pennsylvania, Northern District of Illinois, and sometimes people would rely on the anecdotal statements of the local counsel who might have known the judge, and I think, oh, based on what I know, the judge would do this or that. Mm-hmm. That wasn't very good from a quality decision-making standpoint. Now you can means test your decisions. You can stress test them. And also the data allows you to have a much stronger level of communication and collaboration with the client. Mm. So, for example, we could decide to file the motion to transfer or dismiss, and in a very active docket like the District of Delaware, Eastern District of Texas, Northern District of Illinois, Northern District of California, or Central District of California, you'd have hundreds of decisions. And so I can look at it at the district court level. Mm. I can look at it at the judge level. Mm. I could say the judge in the last five years. Mm. I could look at it from the standpoint of being the plaintiff or the defendant. Mm. And this allows you to say, here is the the lay of the land. Mm. This is the best chance. And then we'll make our decision in that background, which you never had before. Yeah, right. Additionally, what the data allows you to do, because everything everyone does, again, is in a fishbowl. I could say, okay, we want to file a motion. And what are the last 10 motions decided by the court in Delaware? Yay or nay? 
And then I could look at that and say the last five times they ruled in my favor, I could automatically call up the briefing from both sides because it's mm. public. And we can look at that and say which case is the most similar to mm. ours. Mm. And if the case was most similar to ours, mm. which case briefing looks the strongest? Mm. That is the starting point for saying, okay, now we're going to do our briefing structurally along a similar line. Mm. That's very different from a quality standpoint than starting from the bottom up, having a junior associate do legal research mm. and then have people talk about it. Now you're starting from the standpoint of a motion that is won, mm -hmm. that the judge liked, mm -hmm. that is done by a good firm. Mm. Then you can say, how can we enhance this? How can we make this better? So it's both less expensive for the client and much better quality than it was before. Hmm. And that's what the data analytics lets you have. Interesting. Now, has this actually helped your motion practice? Are you winning more motions? I mean, what is your personal experience with this? The personal experience has been really good. And I think it's been really good two ways. One, the clients feel that there's been no surprise. That, I think, is the biggest thing. You know, the one thing when you're in a client service business is you want to avoid rude surprises, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because the in-house counsel, they've got to commit the resources, they've reported to management. Mm -hmm. And so from the standpoint of the data, clients feel more empowered. They feel that their decisions are more logical. Oftentimes, other business people come in who might not be lawyers. The data is something they're more comfortable with. They see data on a chart. Um, and we've been very successful in our motion practice. Um, and that's been great. But, you know, I always knock on wood on that one. But I do think that it's empowered the client, and I think we've positioned ourselves very well. Now, I understand how you can use the data to, you know, figure out, you know, maybe handicap the odds and all the things you're talking about. Are you actually able to use the data in actually persuading, like, for example, go to a judge and argue, hey, 10 times you've done this? Or can you actually use it in the in the situation of the litigation, either against opposing counsel or in the front of a judge that's, that helps you effectively, you know, use this data? You absolutely can use the data in front of the judge, but very clear, judges never want to be told what to do. And, and the fact <laughs> what that they, they've done or, or what they've done, and they certainly don't want to be reminded <laughs> if they've done something different than what they want to do in this matter. But what it does allow you to do is provide comfort. So like, for example, certain motions, like a motion to stay, where the issue comes up to be judicial efficiency. If we stay this case pending... Uh, uh, an action in front of the patent office, for example, an IPR, IPR sure. what would be the likely result? Would the judicial economy be advanced or not? Mm -hmm. Being able to present the data, the success rate and everything, or opposing it, lets the judge feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of statistical data you can use. And also, I'll have to say where it is most effective is in the context of settlement conferences and mediations. Mm. Because in settlement conferences and mediations, if you think about it, you're the settlement judge or you're the mediator, you say, I'm going to win. And I say, we're going to win. Having a third-party objective data set mm -hmm. that they can watch gives you the benchmark. Mm -hmm. It's like years ago, there was a book called Getting to Yes. Did yeah, you of read course. That book? Yeah, yes, of right? course. Yeah. Remember they called it Best Alternative to yeah. Negotiated yeah, Settlement yeah, yeah, or yeah, Objective Criteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the same thing. You now have the data that someone says they have a great case for an injunction, and you can show that this judge has never granted an injunction. The last 100 cases, <laughs> one injunction has been granted. That takes the sting out 
a lot other than just what the legal test would be. Yeah, right. And right. so I do think that the data has been very helpful in terms of providing comfort to the settlement judge to talk off of mm -hmm. because it's something that neither party has to... The judge doesn't have to say, I agree with you or he, she agrees with it's me. the data, right. She has the data. Yeah, yeah. I find that that's been very helpful. Now, what about getting opposing counsel, say, backed out on a motion? Like, they bring a motion. You say, hey, you sure you want to do that? You've, you know, this motion has been lost the last – do you find that that can actually be used to persuade opposing counsel a little bit or not? What's your experience with that? I think that really depends on – uh, one of the most important things in our profession, you know, uh, your reputation and your ability to to be thought of as someone responsible and candid. If you have good relationships with your opposing counsel in the sense that you communicate well, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. You say you're going to do something, you do it. And neither of us try to spike the football on the other. Mm. Then this data becomes incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand... Um, you try to use it as an intimidation tool or you try to use it when you personally don't have credibility. It's incredibly ineffective, mm. right? So I think that, you know, people always think that the data is in lieu of everything that's made our profession interesting and great. It's just the opposite. Is You still, it always comes down to that first thing that Aristotle says is you got to have credibility. Mm -hmm. If you have credibility and you can then have open communications, the data is very powerful. If, on the other hand, you have no credibility or the opposing counsel is highly confrontational, then probably makes no difference. Now, you mentioned earlier some lawyers now you're seeing are using this on a limited basis. Not a lot are using it a lot. Um, do you think that's because lawyers – or are you surprised that lawyers are not using it more? Is it because you think that lawyers are not so comfortable with data? A lot of them are not mathematicians and so forth. Or what's your take on that? I think there's many different reasons why they're not using it. As much as they could be or – Exactly. Think, yeah. And I think one of, one, one of them, which is – a very foolish one, but I think it's a common one, is that they think that it would undermine the, the law firm business model, hmm. that somehow you replace a lawyer's judgment with data, hmm. or somehow you use the analytic tools that kind of eliminates all that research and writing that could have been done by a junior associate, and other things like that. And so they think that anything that would change the traditional model or undermine it is not economically prudent. Mm -hmm. um, now, that may be explicit or just an implicit fear. I think that's a good chunk of it, actually, mm -hmm. because they're, they're not comfortable mm -hmm. with it. And they're also not comfortable, I think some lawyers are not comfortable that the data would cause them to lose control. Mm. Remember, as I pointed out, you know, uh, many of our clients are very familiar with, obviously, PowerPoint presentations, pie charts, uh, Venn diagrams, Excel spreadsheets. And... The minute you stop saying this case says or that case holds or this statute says and you pre present data where there's a decision, should I invest $50,000 in something that has a 30% chance of success, mm. that is a much more of a business decision our clients make all the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's great for us because it's client empowering. Mm. I think people who are very... Um, concerned about losing control of how a case should be done, mm -hmm. they also have a problem with the data. Mm -hmm. um, then there are some people, uh, but I think it's a relatively small percentage, that are just really uncomfortable with data or the data sets. They're more narrative. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing is for the people 
those three fears we talked about are overcome when people realize that all the things we like about our profession are enhanced actually Mm -hmm. by having it. When a client feels more comfortable, when a client feels that they can independently check with whether we said something's a good idea or not, and they don't have to blindly accept what we say, it's a better relationship. Mm. You know, you have a stronger client relationship, which leads to a more satisfying profession and better results. Now, I was going to say, it sounds like this whole data analytics, at least for you, it has really improved. It sounds like it's really enhanced the quality of the practice. And mm-hmm. It sounds like you actually enjoy what you do more. I mean, would you, would you go as far as to say that? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things is that to make our profession enjoyable is a high level of trust. Trust with the clients, trust with the courts, and trust in the process. And here, I think the data can really enhance all of those. But the funny thing is, I always tell people, at the end of the day, if you're going to go into a courtroom, you're standing up there, you still got to be a lawyer who can present, (laughs) right? You're in front of a jury, you still got to be a lawyer who can present, Hmm. right? When you're negotiating a license agreement, you're in a room, you still have to read people, work with people. It's not like robots are taking over. It's just that now people can have uh, more comfort and confidence as to the background where decisions being made. And I think that makes it great. Well, Jim, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time being an engineer myself. I really like this topic. So I really appreciate your taking the time and, and talking to me about it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. This is Richard Chu and James Newton. Thanks. <laughs>